Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Pound. Uh, this week we're reviewing Ridley Scott's House of Gucci, a true crime drama wrapped up in a double G belt. It depicts the unravelling of the Gucci family after Patrizia Reggiani, an ambitious woman from a humble background, marries Maurizio Gucci, heir to the Italian fashion empire. She encourages him to take over the family business, employing cutthroat techniques to take out various cousins and uncles along the way. The result? A messy divorce, a dwindling business and a murder. Lady Gaga takes up the role of Patrizia opposite Adam Driver's Maurizio, with a supporting cast featuring the likes of Jeremy Irons, Al Pacino and Jared Leto, who has put some serious hours in the prosthetics chair. Maybe one too many. The film has had a long, very much talked about campaign and everyone has been looking forward to what seemed like a camp spectacular complete with killer outfits and killer ex-wives. But has it lived up to the hype? Well, to talk about House of Gucci, from the costumes to the questionable Italian accents, I'm joined today by Simran Hans, film critic for The Observer, and Tim Roby, film critic for The Daily Telegraph. Welcome both to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Hello. Okay, good. We're going with the accents. (laughs) We are. I wonder. I wonder when we're we're going to start with the accents. And we have Simran. um, Hi. Hello. Okay. No accent from Simran. It's fine. Shall we dip our toes into the world of the House of Gucci? Here's a bit of the trailer. Gucci. It was a name that sounded so sweet, so seductive. Come meet the family. Everybody. This is Patrizia, and this is my family. Get this teeth out. They had it all. Wealth, style, power. Who wouldn't kill for that? Ah, Parizio, my nephew. I have been the Gucci all my life. It is an empire. You can help the family. Gucci is not exciting, and everybody knows it. Well, at least it's my name, sweetie. Our name, sweetie. All right, there we are. We're back in we're back in the zone with the House of Gucci. What mood are we in with this film? Are we in the world of the camp spectacular, as we sort of semi-promised in the introduction? I feel like the question that everybody is asking about this film, is it good or is it bad? <laughs> okay, I... oh, that's the question behind the question. Yeah, yeah. I can't really answer that. I don't really think that this is a movie that is good or bad. I think it's fun. I think it's extremely silly. I think it's tonally all over the place. I think it's definitely worth watching. Yes, it's camp. Um, But good or bad, I don't really know if it kind of fits into either of those categories. Okay. Um, It's an interesting thing. I wondered whether it was, considering the subject matter, considering some of the cast, considering the kind of outrageous accents and the subject matter, whether it was fun enough. Tim, did you kind of, did you feel that it was sort of imbued with enough kind of silliness, perhaps? I did have fun with it. And I think I am on the same page with with Simran. It it kind of exists in a category beyond good (laughs) or bad. I would have to describe it as kind of a hot mess in a way. I'm reminded of that definition of camp. Was it Susan Sontag who said that camp is failed seriousness? That's why it's camp. It doesn't really know how camp it is because it's sort of trying to be half serious and failing. So in that respect, there are bad aspects of it that only make it more enjoyable. (laughs) Um, And I I did have kind of a hoot with it, even though I do wonder what has happened to Ridley Scott's sense of style. I don't think there is much style in this filmmaking. Great costumes, 
too many of my favourite 80s pop songs piled up on top of each other. Not necessarily in chronological order. Exactly. But but where where is the kind of fluid style that you want from the storytelling? I don't think it's there. I think the, the, the kind of framework of the film is actually quite drab. But still... There are some insane moments in this film. There's a bit where Lady Gaga and Summer Hayek lie together in a mud bath, scheming about putting hexes on people and pushing mud up onto their boobs. And I just could not believe what I was watching. Well, let's let's talk about the Summer Hayek character because she plays a kind of sexy psychic that Lady Gaga's character sees on TV and she's sort of like transfixed by her and she rings her up while, I might add, eating three different types of gelato in one sitting. Um, and she she calls her up to try and ask her for advice. And she asks a psychic question, which is, will I be successful? And then they kind of become friends, confidants, co-conspirators. And there are all sorts of fun, weird little scenes with them. Yes, the uh, mud massaging scene. There's also one where they're kind of plotting a murder and wearing black leather motorcycle jackets. I mean, <laughs> what more could you want? I, can, the, can we really say that those scenes are intended to be serious? I feel like they're kind of put in there as comic relief and as a kind of knowing cheeky wink. Definitely not those scenes, but the mm-hmm. scenes where uh, Adam Driver kind of endlessly discusses the future of the Gucci organisation with the new investors. I was like, <laughs> why are we dro- drifting into this? this? This film is already long and I do feel Adam Driver's character is quite dull. I think Maurizio is he's a robot he's kind of meant to be and it's a relief whenever we're not dealing with him. Yeah, I mean there, there's quite a lot of sort of um business bants isn't there and there's quite a lot of I mean we we just we're just sort of one scene away from a powerpoint presentation at I mean, certain yeah, to, moments of the film aren't we? To call it bants would be generous I think. <laughs> okay, not business bants, <laughs> lack, lack of business bants. Um it's just but, but it is a strange thing because the, the the movie sort of purports to be there's part of which part of it which is a sort of history of the of the Gucci brand and we see Tom Ford come in and sort of and, and sort of turn it around in I suppose the sort of late 90s um and and we see it kind of changing changing kind of pace and stuff but it's somewhere between a family biopic and and a kind of brand story as well how sort of comfortably does it sit in either camp Simran? I think for me it's way more of a family saga and really um, it only very lightly kind of touches on the Gucci legacy I think that kind of telling the story of how Gucci got commercialized allows the filmmakers allows allows Ridley Scott to kind of get into some of the class dynamics of the film that are quite interesting. Lady Gaga as Patrizia, is that her name? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Patrizia is a, a working class woman who kind of uses her feminine wiles and uses her intelligence to kind of worm her way into this dynasty. And um, she's the last woman standing. Admittedly, she ends up standing <laughs> behind bars. But, um, you know... <laughs> I think that the kind of there's a scene where she sort of is shocked to find out that the Gucci handbags have been faked and copied and kind of sold for cheap. And as she's kind of worked her way into um, a place of wealth and luxury, she's like, oh, luxury and quality should only be for the rich. And she's surprised to to learn that actually it's not really about that. It's about making as much money as possible um, by any means possible. And I think that's kind of interesting the way those two things are Yeah, linked. the whole kind of gu- fake Gucci handbags thing was a massive was a massive news story in the 80s, wasn't it, when that sort of happened? It's the kind Before of... my time. <laughs> okay, Simon. Okay. <laughs> but that that was kind of weird. And that it sort of so it takes sort of episodes like that 
that, which are pieces of kind of pop cultural history and sort of fashion history. And then it mixes them up with this kind of this sort of bonkers sort of family story. What about we sort of mentioned the sort of sort of semi supporting cast? I mean, they're in it a lot. Al Pacino, Jeremy Irons, Jared Leto. What about those guys? I mean, this seems to be Lady Gaga's film very much. As you said, Adam Driver's Maurizio is kind of, he's a little bit robotic. He's in the background. That's his kind of role. Um, what about the what about the rest of the gang? Too? Well, I'll try and summarise what happens uh, to two of these performances. Um, Lady Gaga kind of stomps around the film in an increasingly wobbly rage, which is very fun to watch, I found. Um, the memes that will come from that performance are almost <laughs> endless. Just think of the uh, memes. But, uh, and just all of, all of her gesticulating and all yeah. of her, like, it's time to take out the trash and all of this stuff. <laughs> um, amazing. Now... Jeremy Irons, I feel, signs on probably early on thinking, well, this sounds interesting. You know, this sounds interesting, Jeremy Irons. I'm like, well, what's the, 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 death <laughs> the, of the, Gucci, yes. the death of the Gucci family. Great. <laughs> and, um, you know, by the end of the story, not one member of the Gucci family is involved with the company, which is kind of interesting. So you can see how they've grafted this kind of Godfather-esque idea of a saga onto it. And Jeremy Irons kind of comes in doing a sort of, yeah, quite a sort of, a, a, a kind of authoritative routine. He's quite low key. Then he meets Jared Leto's character, uh, who plays his nephew. And Jared Leto is in such a kind of hysterically high over the top key in his huge with his huge paunch, his huge bald paint, his terrible hair, his awful clothes, and his <laughs> incredibly high Italian accent at all times. So it goes that high. Um, that is not an exaggeration of how high pitch he goes. And you can sort of genuinely sense Jeremy Irons sort of sitting back with his eyes widening as he watches this performance. And you can almost see him in his head going, oh, I see this is what people are actually doing. <laughs> oh, I'm in this film. I'm in this film. Oh, dear. I better really <laughs> ramp it up a little bit. And he genuinely starts to get much more ticky and antsy and much more hammy for the last few scenes that he has. Um, so it's, it's unclear which actors are in which films in a way throughout this. I think Al Pacino is quite solid, though, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. And he gets some really good scenes towards the end where he's being n- negotiated and, and manoeuvred out of the clan because he's um, Jeremy Irons' brother. And uh, I thought probably he get, he gave the most respectable performance, I guess, um, among a sort of bevy of not it's very odd. respectable performances. But Yeah, what about and the, and the accents? You mentioned Jared Leto's kind of crazy Italian accent right up here, like this. <laughs> uh, it, the accents are a little bit like a drunk trying to find his way home. Um, sort of swerving down a street, aren't they? They're kind of sometimes... Jeremy Irons, for example, great actor. Sometimes he sounds exceptionally smart and British. Sometimes he sounds a little bit like a kind of Sicilian gangster. I don't quite know. It's all a little bit all over the place. That's the whole film, though, isn't it? It's sort of wildly uneven and doesn't really commit to one time. So, yeah, it's sort of trying to do The Godfather, but it's reminding me more of, of one of those 80s soaps like Dynasty or Dallas. So it's sort of failed <laughs> It's sort of failed Godfather, and that's why it's camp. Um, and I think, I think people just need to be prepared for that when they go in. I think people are, though. I think people know. Well, I, I think for me that unevenness is both the problem with and the pleasure of the film. I think everybody thinks they're in a slightly different movie. I could not believe Jared Leto. I would say it's a career low for Jared Leto. Um, so he'll probably get an Oscar. It's either a career low or a career high. I don't know. It's one or the other. Um, yeah. Um, but Lady, Lady Gaga, I think, is incredible in yeah. this film. I think she is so kind of fierce and full-blooded and brilliant. And, you know, anybody who's seen A Star is Born, like, knows that this is totally within her range. Um, and I, I read a, an interesting review of the film in, in Time magazine, and um, 
Stephanie Zaharek, she she references another interview where Gaga described herself as trying to embody first a house cat, then a fox, and then ultimately a panther. And if you think of that as the kind of trajectory of Patrizia in the film, I think that's just perfect. She is very cat-like and very feline and, yeah... Yeah, she's she's committed to this, isn't she? I mean, she she's, she carries it. She's super committed. All those scenes, she's she's in it, right? But I think I think she's good as well yeah, as yeah, full on. Yeah. I think she's kind of sexy and a bit scary. Even the way she licks a spoon is vaguely threatening. I think. <laughs> I agree, and I like the way she <laughs> clinks uh, a teaspoon on her espresso cup incredibly loudly, like needlessly loudly, just in a sort of menacing way. Yeah. Um, but she she also understands camp. Of course, she's Lady Gaga. She knows where to pitch her performance in between everyone else's. And I like that she kind of pushed it into this zone of kind of mid to late Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Uh, where she's sort of poor out of her outfits basically and getting more and more kind of wobbly as the film goes on uh i i think she is very good actually i think she's yeah, very good she keeps she it together uh, the movie is about a bad romance it's she's kind of playing off that and then when the lyrics come on to uh, heart of glass which of course is one of those needle drops that they have to have you're like once i had a love he had a heart of glass this is the film this is the story <laughs> yeah. there are there are some kind of like yeah pop lyrics that come through that um let's talk about the music then because we sort of talked about the strangely non-chronological order of some of these massive 80s hits and late 70s hits Donna Summer is in it as well what about that how are those I mean you mentioned Elizabeth Taylor Maurizio when when he meets her at this party right at the beginning of the movie says oh you know Elizabeth Taylor that's his sort of shorthand for remembering who she who she who Patrizia is um but what about let's talk about the use of the music in it it it's sort of it's got a sort of Scorsese-esque sort of you know, kind of, wow, here we are. And we're, you know, a lot of money was spent on procuring these records. I just think maybe. someone at some point should have said, enough. Because yeah. they come on every two minutes. So like yeah. one song has barely had a chance to kick in before the next one, next needle drop, lands. And they're just on, all on top of each other, I thought. Well, I think also those reference points aren't specific enough. They're not um, specific enough to the period. They're not kind of chronological like we said a lot of the film takes place in the 90s um, and most of the hits are, are from the 80s and so I don't I, I don't really know what that's giving other than just the kind of populist sheen if that makes well, sense it's trying to give the film some momentum that otherwise lacks as well because it really needs a beat sometimes I do think the, the story is quite sort of slow and sloppy at first and you just need some sort of driving momentum through it otherwise I think people would get quite bored um, it's, this, is a, this is a film about Gucci. This is a film about fashion, purportedly. What about the costumes? What about the clothes, Simran? Is there enough lavish... I, I, won, I didn't feel there was enough lavishness of, of the clothing, of the fashion, of the style. I kind of agree with you. I mean, for me, it's not really successful as a fashion movie. I think what I want from fashion movies is a narrative about a kind of genius, weirdo, creator, loner. Um, and Gucci is not that. It's a story about a brand. Uh, I also think that given that it's a, a kind of fashion film in the loosest sense, it's kind of, it's not stylish. It's blingy, but it's not stylish. And um, I don't really, un- I don't really know like why that is. But there are some great outfits. Um, there's Lady Gaga's red snowsuit, which kind of looks like it's sprayed on. Um, <laughs> there's lots of great 80s There's some hair. good skiing fashion, isn't there? Some good retro skiing fashion. Yeah, and she also wears this incredible kind of sequined gold mini dress. Um, and, you know, you don't want to take your eyes off her. She's Lady Gaga. 
Yeah, some some of her outfits are really on point. That that ski suit is great. And then sometimes it's like you just look like you're dressed as a kind of trashy gold digging housewife of any kind, and not particularly <laughs> Patrizia Gucci. You know, you're sort of it. Just sometimes it seemed a bit generic. And it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning about how where is Ridley Scott's sense of stylistic flair gone? I feel like he, his films now seem so kind of grey and muted compared to even his sort of wacky 80s films. Um, it, this feels like of a piece with something like um, all, all the Money in the World, his uh, J. Paul Getty biopic. It's got that same kind of like, we'll do a lot of cold shots in sort of cavernous rooms. Um, and the the bling is there, but the, the kind of stylistic overkill you want is not there. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would want to watch Baz Luhrmann version of this film oh but just imagine the difference you want something <laughs> I was going to ask you both actually who yeah. you thought would do would, if, if, if this was a sort of project if you were the studio boss who would you have in to, to direct this maybe Sofia Coppola Maybe. Yeah, I, t- I felt yeah. that it needed it needed some more femininity, which would have a good, it. nice Godfather kind of legacy okay. thing carrying on there. I think yeah. she might have done a nice job actually, and she would have kind of centered it a little bit more on Patrizia in the way that you might want. Yeah. I think in another lifetime, this could have been a Lucino Visconti film. Uh, I would have liked it to go kind of more epic, more saga, more Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, both of you. Okay, so that's the House of Gucci. Was it camp enough? Was it fun enough? Was there too much great music? Um, Tim, it's time to talk about things that House of Gucci made, made you guys think of. Um, and we're going to come to you first. And you've chosen Casino. I sort of mentioned Scors- the slightly over Scorsesification of the soundtrack. Um, talk us through Casino and why it reminded you of it. So I could have gone obvious and said The Godfather, which is a lot of people have already identified, and clearly the screenwriters had that in mind when they were scripting this. But the other film I think this does owe quite a lot to is Casino out of Scorsese's films. If you think about the way Casino starts with um, De Niro's character blowing up outside a outside a casino in Vegas, he's been assassinated... Uh, this film starts in exactly the same way in terms of the, the way the, the story is leading. And if you think about the main, the role for Sharon Stone yeah. in Casino as the kind of gold-taking wife who eventually becomes his mortal enemy um, and all of that. Uh, so I feel as though the, the loose pattern of the film is is quite Casino-ish. I feel as though the obsession with money in it is Casino-ish. And I also think that in the same way that Casino tipping into almost parody Scorsese mode, which people accused it of at the time in 1995. I like, I, I, it's, it's, it's better than people I said I think it, it is pretty time. good, yeah. but it, it definitely is Scorsese kind of like wheeling out his old tricks, and I feel as though this film is, is wheeling out sort of all sorts of other people's tricks at all times. It's sort of a parody of everything, but uh, without necessarily being in control of what it's doing. I think Casino is in control, though, um, and it does stand up really well. It does have one of the worst effect shots in any film. That moment <laughs> I just described where uh, De Niro blows up in the car and turns into a dummy for a split second before the explosion is... I, I just don't know how... Uh, Marty and Thelma Schumacher thought that that was, would do. But anyway, that aside, um, again, a great soundtrack movie, brilliant use yeah. of Rolling Stones, for example, throughout it. Um, but I think that in, in a way exposes what's missing from this film because Scorsese can do colour and showmanship and pizzazz and make a three-hour-long film, even longer than this one, um, kind of fly by because of his, his control, really. Um, and I just don't know if this if really Scott has got the goods anymore. I, I felt um, the last duel had some strange structural problems that it never quite dealt with. The three the telling of it three times didn't quite pay off in the way you wanted it to. 
why his films always 162 minutes long now or whatever oh, they are. It's something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I miss 90s cinema. I, I miss those. I miss Heat. I miss Casino. I miss the really long prestige films that we were given in the mid 90s that everyone was very hyped for and which in general did kind of pay off. And I'm, I don't know if we get those films these days. I know what you mean. I felt I felt in that it, there's 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 films that are long. There's sagas. There's epics. But there's things that just feel a bit like. You've done your journey, and then there's a rail replacement bus service at the end. <laughs> right, that's how I, yeah. I kind of felt that with, with this. Um, Simran, um, you've picked Alicia Drake's Beautiful Fall, Lagerfeld, Saint Laurent, and Glorious Excess in the 1970s. Tell us about this book. I mean, this there's a nice link here. Yeah, so you know, I I said earlier that I didn't feel this was enough of a fashion film, and I, I wanted more fashion. And so, um, what it really made me think of was times when I've had. Uh, the correct amount of fashion. And, you know, I read this book, which was originally published in 2006, um, back in lockdown. It's set in Paris in the 70s. It's a very kind of glamorous, gossipy, non-fiction history of the rivalry between Karl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent. So you have kind of pre-Chanel Karl Lagerfeld when he was freelance for Chloe and Fendi. And uh, then Yves Saint Laurent when he was at Dior before starting YSL. But you get all of their kind of personal dramas and sort of um, all the kind of gossip that that you want without the sacrifice of the fashion at the same time. So, you know, there's an unbelievable section um, with Yves Saint Laurent talking about, well, he's not talking about it, but the writer, she kind of discusses how he was conscripted to fight in the Algerian civil war and then he lasted like 20 days before he got sick ended up dropping out and then got fired um <laughs> so it fired from from dior so that was uh that's that's the kind of level of drama that we're talking about um you hear about Karl Lagerfeld's eating disorder um but it's all very much still about style taste craft fashion um, and so if you want more fashion and want more history, that's that's a really good place to start. Nice. I like it. We've come full circle. That was um, Simran on Alicia Drake's Beautiful Fall, Lagerfeld, Saint Laurent and Glorious Success in 1970s Paris. A little bit of stitching to take us uh, nice, nicely up to the end in a couture kind of way. Um, that is all we have time for this week. House of Gucci is out in cinemas now. Thanks to my guests, Simran Hans and Tim Roby, and of course to my producer, Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you very much for tuning in. 